Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Jermaine from the National University of Singapore about the benefits of exercise. We tried to make this episode a bit more accessible than the others and hope it will serve as a decent introduction to the topic. If you want some technical commentary, you can check out the comments after the podcast for some of my controversial takes. And before we start this podcast, I would like to share a beautiful tweet I saw online explaining why death does not give meaning to life. It says, humanity needs to evolve past this deafest way of thinking. Humanity needs to evolve past this deafest way of thinking. A candle's meaning comes from the light it gives. It would be stupid to snuff out a candle just because the darkness would make you appreciate the light more. All right. It's great to have you here today with me at the Vitodao Aging Science Podcast. I'm looking forward to a very interesting discussion. And what, what we will do is in the beginning, we'll talk a bit about the general public health aspects of exercise, why it's good, what is the evidence, what are the limitations. And later we will talk more specifically about your research interests, what is going on in um, Singapore at the Center for Healthy Longevity. And I will ask some um, controversial questions today because um, I think everyone has heard a million times how amazing exercise is. So I think it's also important to discuss um, where, where we have disagreements or the limitations of the evidence. How does that sound? Uh, that sounds great. Uh, thank you so much, Camille, for inviting me to this very uh, interesting podcast. Um, I think I look forward to that that discussion with you in a, in a few seconds. Yeah, maybe we can just start with the very basics. So what does the evidence say about exercise? Why is it beneficial and how is it beneficial? Okay. Just a rough sketch for us. Yeah. Okay, sure. So at least what we've known from epidemiology studies is that we know that individuals that participate in um, exercise training tend to be a lot fitter. And they tend to be, you know, there's a confounding effect of um, their lifestyles on, uh, or rather the confounding effects of uh, their lifestyle practices. So they tend to be more watchful in terms of what they eat, uh, you know, and how much, how much uh, um, activity they do. Um, so in that sense, it does help to, as a primary prevention method, it does help them uh, ward off, you know, the onset of chronic disease. I think that's just in a, in, a, in a very general, generally speaking. Yeah, so a lot of the data is based on epidemiological studies. So how does this work? Yeah, okay. So in epidemiology studies, what there are two types of studies, right? There are two kinds of um, study designs that you know, most of the research is focused on. You know, they look at, for example, observational studies where they uh, you know, get data from thousands of people and then they look at the kinds of, um, in this case, we're really just focusing on activity. So we'll just look at the kinds of physical activity that, that they've done over the past 
couple of months or even up to years and decades, um, and then try to uh, you know derive some associations with how much they did versus their current health outcomes. Then again, there are also uh, randomized controlled trials where individuals are followed into the future. So then let's just say they get randomly selected into either a control group where there is no um, exercise training per se, but then the other group would that then get the all the attention that they need for let's say three months to six months or even a year. Then you typically what happens is these individuals are followed across uh, six months to a year, or even there could be you know up to three years of follow up uh, in terms of their primary outcomes. So there are these two kinds of of um, study designs in in epidemiology studies. Right, and yeah, so there there is um often a lot of critical talk about observational studies. Mm-hmm. all their shortcomings, which we will talk about later. But so in this case, I think it's um, easiest to understand the benefits of exercise in terms of its impact on validated risk factors shown mm-hmm. in controlled trials. Um, could you briefly outline like what does exercise do on this level? Okay, I think maybe before we go in even into exercise, I want to take one step back, you know, and really define uh, or rather give distinctions between physical activity and exercise training. I think this is one thing in our field that has been is understood in our field, but I don't think as uh, exercise physiologists or you know public health advocates that we do a very good job of trying to to educate the public on the differences. We also don't do a very good job in terms of educating our colleagues in let's say uh, the clinical field that they're actually very two uh, two very different um, um, paradigms that we're talking about. So firstly, physical activity is really that big, broad umbrella, which covers human movement, right? Uh, If we were to even break it down, we're really talking about skeletal muscle contraction. So physical activity, if we define it, it really is the contraction of skeletal muscle that results in an increase in energy, uh, energy expenditure above resting levels. So in other words, most people, when they move, that is physical activity. But I think to be very specific, what we then do is we divide that physical activity into different components. We talk about occupational physical activity, especially for people that are um, uh, in more blue collar jobs or what we call maybe more uh, uh, late laborious uh, manual work, let's say in farming and construction, in, 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 uh, in more um, heavy machinery kind of work. Um, then we can even divide that into just commuting activities, right? So we are going on our daily activities, we are expanding energy. And then of course, you have the uh, recreational aspects of physical activity. And then that one, you have your sports, you have your different types of um, ball games, your racket sports, where exercise typically come under, where it typically comes under, it would be under the the so-called the recreational space. And the difference then is where exercise, or we, we, we in a field, we use a more uh, defined term, we say exercise training is a very specific um, focus activity where we want to improve um, fitness. And then in terms of fitness, we're talking about a lot of, a lot of things, right? We're talking about cardio, cardiorespiratory fitness. We're talking about improving muscular strength. We are talking about improving muscular endurance. We are also talking about improving muscle mass. And the, controver- uh, the, the converse is true. We are trying to reduce the amount of uh, fat mass. We are trying to improve, uh, bo- um, uh, what do you call that? Flexibility, I apologize. 
and then we are trying to improve um, well-being in general. So exercise training is then taken to the, to this state. Exercise training is that subset of physical activity. So uh, many times, you know, um, individuals either in a, in in a public health space or you know, let's say. Uh, a general public would say what they are talking about. They say I've done enough exercise for this week, when they typically mean physical activity. But then you know you you get benefits right from participating in physical activity. But then you get additional benefits if you participate in exercise training. So I, I thought you know I would like to just kind of lay the stage first um, and be able to distinguish between the two. Thank you for this definition. Um, yeah, I think it's very important to distinguish because I'm assuming the different kinds of physical activity will have different effects in on outcomes and and uh, risk factors. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I could quote you an example. You know, let's say we talk about light physical activity, something like walking, or something like um, gardening. Right? We are definitely contracting our skeletal muscle. We are definitely increasing um, metabolic rate. Okay, but then is that the same as going for that's uh, you know a three kilometer, a four kilometer, five kilometer run? The demands, the physiological demands on the skeletal muscle, the physiological demands on the on the heart, on the metabolic system is different, right? I think we can all we can we can both um, uh, agree with that. So if the requirements are different, then surely the amount of um, benefits would be quite different as well. Right. And when we look at the trials, those medium-sized trials of exercise or physical activity, what, what kind of what do they usually study? What kind of physical exercise um, modalities? Yeah, so it's the easiest to always just um, prescribe a aerobic exercise training program, right? Because in that sense, we can always define what is the the frequency. Or rather, how many times we actually put an individual on, a, on, for example, the treadmill. We can define the speed. We can define the intensity. Um, we can define how long we're putting that person on the treadmill. And for the most part, it can be pretty objective. I mean, you, these are factors that you can control. But if we were to say, um, you know, we ask the person to uh, jump rope or skip, or if we ask the person to, you know, do strength training. I mean, even even that is quantifiable. But I think the easiest way for us to quantify anything is still to put the person either on a on a motorized treadmill or to put the person on a, a cyclogometer, so that you can truly control um, the intensity, the duration, and so on. So these tend to be the the kinds of um, exercise training programs that are used in many research groups, right? So um, I think that being the case, I think. You know, we, we talked a little bit about the physical activity component. We then talked a little bit on a subset of physical activity, which is exercise training. And now in our, in our field, you know, individ, um, individual groups have also identified that being sedentary or inactive, which is on the other spectrum of the energy balance scale, is also important for health. So now there's also this, um, you know, concerted effort to study um, sedentary behavior or inactivity and how that drives different uh, disease pathways like insulin resistance and, and, and obesity and so on. So yes, I, th I think the, the, the space in human movement uh, is getting quite, quite uh, crowded. I think there's a lot of interest in asking different kinds of um, related questions. And um, just briefly, um, what are you interested in looking at? Okay. Um, 
I'm pretty interested, you know, since I was doing my um, graduate studies, I'd always been interested in how um, exercise training can modulate the immune system. And, you know, by that, I, you know, we always hear that, that common saying, right? Exercise can boost your immune system. It can prevent uh, a person from falling sick. So my, when I was doing my master's, my, my question then was, does, you know, exercise. And back then I was involved in a study looking at how uh, yoga exercise training could be involved in modulating um, natural killer cell activity in women with breast cancer. So that was, that was my first foray into, into um, the exercise intervention space. And since then, during my PhD, I was looking at the effects of uh, wheel running uh, in, in mouse models. So I would put transgenic mice that would develop breast cancer and put them on a running wheel and see what happens. Now, now that is not truly exercise training per se, because I couldn't, I couldn't um, you know, control how much they ran. So this was purely a, um, you could call that as a purely physical activity-based uh, intervention. So not as much uh, exercise-based. But yes, so now right now my my team we are very interested in looking at elements of inflammation, and how that actually differs between let's say one session of um, bicycle training or bicycle exercise versus one session of um, lower limb resistance exercise. What are the kinds of molecules being released that are uh, in, related to inflammation, and how does that change with age? I think these are some of the questions we are asking. So. As far as I'm aware, broadly speaking, certain kinds of inflammation increase with aging and are um, predictive of death and worse outcomes. So what role does exercise play here more specifically? So from our understanding you know, of the literature and people that are doing this kind of work, we realize that in individuals that are you know, lifelong exercisers, so for example, there are studies that look at uh, studies out of, for example, Ball State University uh, in Scott Trappi's group, they looked at individuals that uh, exercise for decades, right? They participate in, in, in marathons and in competitive racing. And compared to individuals of the same age, so let's say these individuals are 60 years old, 70 years old, they have a twofold uh, lower concentration of inflammatory um, biomarkers in their blood. You know, so... That's this anti-inflammatory component that exercise seems to seems to be beneficial for. It tends to upregulate a lot of these anti-inflammatory um, biomarkers, if you will, um, and then that has a that's a has a has a downstream effect on you know mitigating the types of uh, chronic diseases that may that may occur. So, for example, you know diabetes is also known to have an inflammatory component, and it's likely that a lot of the drivers. Uh, originate from adipose tissue. Adipose tissue get dysfunctional. They release a lot of these inflammatory mediators. We call them cytokines or adipokines. And in individuals that are highly active, you know, these these uh, concentrations of such mediators are dampened or they are downregulated. So I think what exercise does over the long term, over decades, over over years and decades, is that it tends to keep these these uh, mediators at bay. Right. There are other components, but I think this is at least an anti-inflammatory effects of uh, exercise is well known. And regarding the, this effect, is there a difference between resistance exercise and aerobic exercise, or it's not entirely clear yet? But um, let me re rephrase your question. So the question is, 
is there a difference between uh, resistance exercise and aerobic kind of exercise? Yeah, so there is. And I think we are still only trying to find out what the mechanisms are <laughs> in the sense that uh, aerobic exercise, you know, involves really just dynamic contraction of skeletal muscle, meaning that the contraction is sustained for 10 minutes or 20 minutes for 30 minutes. And it involves different muscle groups, you know, for example, the type one uh, slow twitch muscle fibers predominantly, and some, some contribution from type two skeletal muscle fibers. On the other hand, uh, resistance exercise, or what we also call strength training, the amount of dynamic uh, contraction is way less. I mean, the amount of contraction doesn't go for more than 40 seconds max, or it depends on how many repetitions a person is doing. But that kind of contraction is much less. The, um, the, amount, the amount of, um, or the type of muscle fibers being recruited for the specific activity is going to be very different as well. Uh, the, these kinds of activities typically recruit type two or your fast twitch muscle fibers. So that being the case, you know, the kinds of contraction being elicited um, during the, the activity, the amount of time that the muscle spends under contraction influences the physiological responses of the body, right? It will change how the blood is flowing to and from the skeletal muscle. It would then change um, the type or possibly the concentration of molecules that are released from skeletal muscle. And there's a huge amount of interest, I think, for the past 15 years on these molecules, which we now call them myokines. These molecules are known to um, present many of the benefits um, from exercise, for example, in mediating insulin sensitivity, uh, mediating neurogenesis, mediating you know, positive adaptations in the mitochondria and so on. So there's this, this understanding that skeletal muscle is an endocrine organ. It releases these myokines, which then have that um, remote effect on other uh, recipient organs, if you will. And I think we, we, we are now trying to find out what these candidates are. Uh, it's been shown that exercise releases thousands of such molecules you know, in the bloodstream uh, after every single session of, of exercise. Yeah, the number of myokines is certainly uh, baffling and <laughs> really huge. And I hope we, we can talk about them um, in a moment. But before that, um, I wanted to still ask you a couple of other things. So we were just talking about uh, the difference between aerobic and resistance exercise. Would it be correct to say that resistance exercise is better for prevention of frailty and uh, aerobic exercise maybe for cardiovascular health or are there other aspects here? I think that's a very good question, Camille. You know, when we define frailty, we, we really, I think the field is still trying to define it, right? Is it truly just a loss of muscle strength and, um, you know, muscle performance, or is it also something more? Because then frail individuals are unlikely to have that kind of um, cardiorespiratory capacity of somebody that's non-frail. So one could argue that if we were to focus simply on strength training to improve bone mineral density, to improve skeletal muscle mass or maintain skeletal muscle mass in, uh, in the older adults, then we are not necessarily... Uh, obtaining or receiving the kinds of cardiovascular benefits, which you also pointed out. So, you know, I think it shouldn't be, it's kind of like the diet, right? 
you know, people are always asking, what is the best diet? Then the most, I would say maybe the most acceptable answer is always to have a very varied diet. There isn't a one size fits all, but it always seems that different components of a varied diet would have multiple uh, or would have different benefits for you. And just like exercise, that should people shouldn't just do one thing and, you know, um, avoid the rest, but actually try to incorporate different elements of aerobic strength training or even flexibility training into their routine. Of course, I think what we're asking for is not for every person to become an athlete, but to be able to use their bodies in a way that will carry them, um, you know, healthily throughout their years. And I think, you know, that human movement is truly what can keep us healthy, uh, more vibrant, uh, stronger during, during, during the aging process. So it's really not one focus, but it should be multiple, multiple uh, levels of integration. It actually makes sense to combine multiple types of exercise on the sp spectrum between aerobic and resistance, right? Yep. But I get the impression like most studies are very focused on a single type of intervention. Mm -hmm. I, and I think that's true because then we are, we are only asking from, a, from an experimental approach, right? Where, which one is um, beneficial in terms of looking at a primary outcome? Because if we were to combine two types of exercises, we can't really say it's the individual uh, contribution from, say, aerobic exercise is this amount versus the, the actual contribution from strength training is this amount. I think it's really more for experimental purposes that investigators typically separate them. Uh, and of course, then that's also constrained by money. If they want to do a huge study, then yes, they could possibly split uh, the cohorts into several different arms where they can, they can do a combined approach, they can do a single approach, they can have a control group. But I think really what we're looking at is the limitation of resources, the limitation of um, uh, money, and you know, there's only so much you can do. Right, that's um, always a problem, a limitation of resources. So I, I recall, uh, I once saw you at a talk that you gave about exercise and we were we were talking about one of um those questions we made this distinction as you said between just um light physical activity and actual actual exercise and i mentioned that a lot of people including for example my parents they just go for a walk they're like in their mm -hmm. 60s and they claim this is exercise would you say um does this fall below the threshold of what would be considered like real physical activity should people do more even if they're 60s? I don't know too much about that. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Kamei. I think that's a very, you know, uh, provocative thought, right? Um, because I have the same question for my parents too. All my parents have the same kinds of questions. I think the evidence out there is at least even if they were to start any kind of um, exercise training. So then what we're talking about is, you know, any level that is more than the current physical activity levels, anything would be an improvement for them. But of course, I think the question is how much to do, how long to do it. And there, you know, we are always given guidelines that are just kind of um, uh, a cookie-cutter kind of you know, um, guideline, where it's always based on the WHO guidelines where it's 30 minutes of general physical activity, five days a week. It's so standard that nobody cares about this anymore. I mean, from their, from their viewpoint, they, what they're trying to do is to get people to be less sedentary, right? But what we are trying to do is to say, okay, you know, you, you have actually gotten off the couch. You are no longer a couch potato. 
you are now doing three to four days a week of 20 minutes of walking. Is that good for you? You know, absolutely is good for you, right? You are maintaining some level of activity, but could you do more? It's just the, ba- the basal level that you could do. Because if there is, there's always room to do more. And I think many times in the general public, most people don't know how to go about it. They don't know where to go. They don't know um, how to safely start or even progress to the next stage. So that's why most people stay in a comfort zone. So this is no longer a matter of the science, but really a matter of um, you know getting this into the community and implementing it. So I think back to your question on whether they can do more, I think the answer is certainly, even if they have um, you know, current chronic conditions, they can definitely you know, do more while getting some level of uh, supervision. And again, then I think it, it, it um, falls back on you know, exercise practitioners, uh, on physiotherapists, you know, and so on, to actually be able to provide that kind of service uh, to to the general public. I think that makes sense that the word you mentioned is like comfort zone and people may not be used to pushing themselves in a, in a safe and reasonable manner, but it requires some kind of progressive increase in intensity or, or if you want to reap the full benefits. Absolutely. And if you think about it too, you know, I think most people want to stay in the comfort zone because it is uncomfortable to push their bodies uh, if they've not done it in decades, right? And then they, they read in the, in the popular press like how, you know, there's sudden cardiac death, especially in, in uh, people that, that decide to become a weekend warrior and they, they join a race, they join a marathon, and oops, this person seemingly healthy just collapses from some kind of a random cardiac event. So that kind of sensational news certainly doesn't help people when, when they're thinking about if they sh- should be doing more. So then the best approach that most people would then do is, okay, well, just do the bare minimum, right? So the thing is, the, the, uh, these epidemiology studies are showing us that, yes, there's definitely uh, a risk of, um, of any kind of unexpected cardiac uh, events. But then those risks are way uh, less. They're completely, the, the, the risks are completely outweighed by the benefits of participating in, in more vigorous activity. Right? It's studies of the studies have shown us that you know, the amount of relative risk in terms of reduction in cardiovascular-related mortality is, is clear that you actually have this huge benefit if you if a person were to participate in these, these uh, activities. Indeed. And we do not want to discourage anyone from uh, participating in exercise, but I, I do wonder, so there are some um, studies or some authors that in reviews mention that exercise, both um, be it resistance training or aerobic exercise might have like a U-shaped, um, the benefits might have a U-shaped response how far how close is this to the mainstream what are your views on like what is too much or how does it look right i think what you're referring to is kind of a um let's say if we are talking about the benefits i think it's actually an inverted u-shape so you know if you don't do anything you know your your benefits are very minimal if you do somewhat of a moderate nature you seem to attain the um the most benefit and then if you do way too much, then again, it seems like the, the risk would then outweigh the, um, the benefits. I think in, in my experience and from my understanding of the literature, most people 
don't even know what moderate means. And even we as um, exercise scientists, we are still trying to define what that moderate means because you can always use a very generic program and then you get people that would respond positively to that, to that, um, to that same standardized uh, prescription, exercise prescription. You would get you know, 30%, let's say, of individuals that respond positively. You may get 10% of individuals that, uh, um, don't quote me on this, you would get a percentage of individuals that may not respond if we are looking at things like uh, you know, improvements in high-density lipoprotein. Or you could have individuals that actually have decrease in the, in the concentrations of this HDL. So, for example, the heritage study in the US, you know, it's shown that if you were to have a very standardized exercise protocol, you do get individuals that respond. So we call them the responders. We get people that are non-responders. And eventually you get people that actually show an adverse uh, response. So I think moving forward into the future, I think we are really talking about not just the averages, not just the mean response in, in most people, especially in a study design, but I think we're now talking more about individualized um, you know, uh, responses and you know how that might be an interaction of um, both the underlying genetic makeup and again, with the, with the kind of uh, training that they get. Yep. So actually, sorry to, to then touch on that point. I think it's very fascinating then, you know, that there's this, this U-shaped or this inverted U-shaped response is very analogous to what in toxicology or originated from toxicology, this whole idea of hormesis, right? That a certain toxin or a certain uh, poison, for that matter, would likely be beneficial, you know, at um, quote unquote moderate doses would not have an effect at low doses, but then would have a very detrimental effect at high doses. So I think, you know, in our in our human systems, I think it's also that response where we have to constantly adapt to a um, physiological demand during exercise that somehow seems to improve many of the physiological functions in, in our body. And each person's moderate uh, level, if I may use that word, would be completely different from somebody else's, just simply based on their uh, genetic and you know uh, predisposition i can imagine that there are definitely differences in the predisposition for example myself i always feel really good when i do flexibility training mm -hmm. or even meditation like really um these um relaxing kind of activities but i read of people who cannot handle this and i i think it's the same for other kinds of um uh, physical activity Mm -hmm. I think to each uh, his or her own, right? I think there are certain things that we enjoy to do more uh, than more so than other kinds of activities. And I think as long as we find a good balance where we are doing some somewhat of um, every every single component, I think that would be the best, you know, ideal approach. Though so not necessarily everybody would be able to do it. But let's say there are differences between individuals, right? Yeah. How would you approach this in either practice or as a scientist? How would you do? design a protocol for a study that, you know, keeps this in mind and, you know? I think, um, Camille, I think then it really boils down to what is sustainable for this individual. So let's say for yourself, you enjoy uh, yoga, you enjoy meditation. Then I would say for your case, you could, if you could do this every day, you would definitely do it, right? Then would that be, um, you know, would you be amenable to trying things like maybe swimming, or, you know, most people don't like running. So instead of doing running, could you go 
uh, hiking instead? Could you go um, cycling? Could you go not snowshoe, not snowshoeing, but you know, cross-country skiing? So there are many, many ways of improving cardiovascular health that you know one could actually do. Um, that doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all. It can be many different things, right? You could even play football or tennis or whatever. All these games have that cardiovascular component. I think the key is, if you do that, can you actually maintain that for months, years, right? Because I think the jury is out when it comes to a lot of these RCTs uh, that we talked about earlier, right? You know, sometimes they they fail to show any kind of benefit simply because maybe the outcome isn't attained in six months. Maybe, the again, the mean um, improvement is so minimal that for this group of individuals that are very well-defined, by the way, may, maybe they need to have a higher dose of uh, prescription, right? So a lot of times, I think that's what we are, we're trying to do. We are trying to think of something that fits the general population, but then we just talked about individualized uh, prescription. So if we were to do that, maybe the effect sizes would be so strong that what we're really seeing is, you know, everybody would have this optimal um, adaptation to whatever activity that they choose to do. And maybe that could be the approach in, in, a, in, a, in the future. Yeah, the, the situation with the um, controlled trials of exercise reminds me a bit about uh, of vitamin D. Like it seems very beneficial in observational studies, but it's very hard to pin down in control trials. I would say the evidence, of course, for exercise is much much better, but uh, on the hard outcomes in randomized controlled trials, sometimes we're still, it seems, lacking. Yes. Yes. I think, again, right, you know, the real world is a lot more difficult to control. I mean, we, we tell individuals uh, or subjects that we recruit into our studies that they are supposed to live a certain way, exercise a certain way for three months or six months or whatever, and during that time, you know, they have to be so motivated to just do whatever we tell them that, you know, for many people, it's almost impossible to maintain that level of um, dedication once the study closes, right? So which is why, for example, in many of these um, studies looking at exercise and weight loss, they typically report that the first three to six months, that's always going to be beneficial effects. They're motivated. They're constantly being tracked by the investigators. But after that, if you follow them long enough, people typically revert back to their old patterns of behavior. You know, it's, so it's not a matter of the science. It's not a matter of the protocol. I think it's, matter, it's a matter of human motivation and instilling a certain kind of a habitual um, change, right? How long does it take to form a habit? At least 21 days to form a habit. How long does it take for that habit to stay? Months at least, right? But life events happens things change and people kind of lose the interest or you know, maybe the support group moves out. And these things are not accounted for when we do these biomedical studies or very seldom are they taken into account. Um, but I think they all, they all affect the degree in which individuals can actually be very dedicated uh, to a certain lifestyle. Yeah, I think from a public health perspective, good types of exercise are the ones that people enjoy doing that includes social activities, ball sports, and I think that gives people motivation to stick to it. Absolutely. I, I think the social component is so important, right? So now you see a lot of these kinds of exercise groups really forming about, you know, creating a, a group identity and getting people that are like-minded to join them. And I think those are really the ways to go where I think if people have 
a buddy or a friend, you know, then more likely there's this accountability uh, factor which keeps them on target. Yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah, it's a bit cliche, but here in Asia, you see often these groups of older people exercising. I don't think we get this in Europe that mm -hmm. much. It's not as much. But maybe, maybe you know, the thing is with uh, other kinds of activities, maybe hiking, for example, you know, that might be more of a group activity in Europe and maybe not so much in, in, in Asia. But yeah, I, I take your point. Okay, so um, well, having established that exercise is is beneficial. There are, of course, shortcomings of the evidence. Maybe we can um, talk more about mechanisms and your studies of inflammation and exercise. Um, what, what are your findings on these topics? Okay, so um, we could actually look at some of these uh, inflammation factors as you know damage proteins or damage related proteins. So my interest is in a group of um, such proteins called uh, damage-associated molecular patterns, or DEMs. These are essentially molecules that are um, sequestered in a specific compartment in a cell, but under times of uh, physiological stress or injury, uh, which results in either cell death or you know, a release from the cells, that these molecules tend to be released to signal um, Uh, to signal to the immune cells to have an inflammatory response. Um, one of the molecules that I'm very interested in is this molecule called a uh, high mobility uh, group box protein one, high, uh, HMGB1. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting molecule. You know, it's uh, typically a nuclear chaperone. But again, as mentioned, you know, during times of disease or during times of stress uh, or illness, that it actually gets released from the nucleus into the cytoplasm and eventually Uh, into into the bloodstream and it functions like a, a cytokine or a signaling molecule where it can then prime, for instance, uh, the recruitment of specific immune cells for repairing uh, tissue damage or, or you know to to release factors that are helping with uh, muscle regeneration. So one of my studies, um, which was done a couple of years back, was to look at uh, whether exercise would instigate the release of this this molecule. So we had individuals, uh, or actually all young young men, uh, I think from the ages of 20 to 33 or 34, and they came into the lab. They then performed uh, uh, concurrent aerobic and resistance exercise, and you know we we got blood from them before the exercises, and then after the exercise, and then again 30 minutes after the exercise was completed, and we found that you know this molecule was released uh, you know at least by about one and a half to two folds um, beyond the baseline concentrations into the bloodstream. So it's quite fascinating to see that even exercises that are not typically considered exhausting like a marathon uh, would result in the release of, of that molecule. All right. You know the tough part is in human studies to try to tease out the mechanisms, but we believe that there is an immune component to it. We believe that it could be driven by oxidative stress. Um, but then we still have a lot of work in trying to understand, you know, which cells they're released from during exercise in humans and what are some of the post-translational modifications that takes place. Because uh, the type of modification that takes place would influence the behavior. You know, would they be more pro-inflammatory? Would they be more chemotactic? And so on. And these are questions that we are very excited to try to, to, try to answer, but um, it, takes, it takes time to actually address them. So do you think all these myokines 
and similar molecules either are they released due to tissue damage or is there like an active component as well i think there is definitely an active component so for example the earliest uh, um, myokine that was detected um, you know mostly done in the groups of uh, bento peterson and mark fibril uh, in 2005 it was shown that il6 interleukin 6 right was released in spite of muscle damage so you know i think they secreted mostly back back then in those studies they were released from skeletal muscle mostly as a signal to indicate that there was some substrate i wouldn't call it fatigue but then there was a substrate uh, depletion so for example they got the they got these individuals that exercise on a, in a very low muscle glycogen state and then they they did measured the concentrations of uh, il6 coming out from the um Uh, venous blood from the muscle and they realized that uh, the concentrations had gone up several fold and it correlated very nicely with um, the the depletion of glycogen so in other words these kinds of myokines or these myokines could be released due to the energetic state of the skeletal muscle or other organs um and it could also be like you said you know it could also be due to damage um but then again all these candidates right are uh, multifaceted they are pleiotropic they have different functions and we are only just starting to find out that they may play a role in substrate utilization they may have a role in muscle regeneration they may have a role in wound healing with vascular genesis and so on um but yes i think i think it's right now more and more we are just trying to to find out how much more right are they contributing in terms of uh, tissue remodeling and so on i think the other the other aspects could also be true for example uh in cases of cancer right i think some of these molecules can actually prime uh immune cells to take on a more tumorocidal um role where they they can actually um actually kill the cancer cells themselves or perhaps by outcompeting them for metabolic substrates they may um you know deprive them of that that uh, proliferation aspect So I think yes these myokines certainly have a role and I think it's it's really you know up to the next couple of years to see you know what what more we can learn from them and IL6 release is would that be harmful I mean normally it's associated with worse outcomes in epidemiology right Mhm So what's been known Camilla and again this is a great question what's been known at least in uh the field of um, metabolic disease metabolic flexibility is that IL6 when you're measuring it uh under resting conditions is typically re- released from the adipose tissue. So yes, if released from high, uh, released from adipose tissue and at, at higher concentrations could indicate a sign of metabolic dysfunction in those tissues. But then IL6 released from skeletal muscle during muscle contraction during exercise actually has an anti-inflammatory uh, uh aspect to it. because what happens then is IL6 actually also instigates the release of other anti-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin 1 receptor agonist uh, IL1RA interleukin 10 and so on and that cascade actually is beneficial in terms of dampening or downregulating the inflammatory signals so i think it has to be very context specific it has to be very um uh, tissue specific you know where where IL6 is is actually uh release from but i think that was a that was a great point also i'm assuming most of these factors are transient like they are released only after exercise for a while 
And yes, absolutely true. And so I think it's really not so much that you know one one exercise a week is good for you, but rather I think is that accumulation of these separate bouts of exercises spread across one week or a couple of days that has this kind of uh, cumulative effect. Because then if these are, these molecules are so transient, the amount of effect that they can have on the the uh, the remote organs could be just transient as well. But I think it's really the long-term effects of continuous doses of these these molecules, right, to have that long-term effect. So yes, I think um, it's it's really that 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 aspect. So you don't tell the person to just have one or two times a week. Maybe this person needs four to five times a week, and if they can avoid injuries, maybe five or six times a week could be beneficial. I think this also brings to another point. You know, if you look at some of these, I think there was a study in the British Journal of Sports Medicine where they looked at uh, Olympians having, uh, I think in general, a longer lifespan or even health span compared to a lot of um, their age match uh, counterparts. And one of the ideas presented in that paper was that these Olympians had trained from a very young age, you know, at a very high intensity, a very high level. And Perhaps, you know, being exposed to that amount of, um, again, I'm going to use the biological term, being exposed to that level of preconditioning may afford some kind of protection that is greater than the normal population. You know, if you, if you imagine the amount of dose or the dose of activity that they are doing in the, in the 10, 15 years, it could be way more than what uh, most individuals do in their entire lifetime, right? So I think compared to um, the general population. I think that's the reason why had they also continue to, to remain active, you know, that propensity for developing chronic diseases is so much uh, lower. Okay, well, what I'm wondering though, you talked about some of, of the myokines you study, so of these mediators released from muscle, um, but there are so many. Are we getting closer to knowing which ones are important more or less? I think um, we are slowly mapping out you know their role in for example muscle frailty or sarcopenia and i think yes i think we have an idea that some of them are truly pleiotropic so you can have effects on the muscle on the bone they may have effects on the brain i think maybe this is what keeps us in business right we're slowly discovering you know what each of them are in concert and together how they're actually contributing to health i think the possibilities are, are quite you know numerous and, you know, depending on the kinds of exercises, depending on how long, how, the type, uh, the intensity, in which populations, I think these are all questions that are very exciting. And I think it would still continue to give us more insight. You know, as an interventional mouse biologist, so the mm -hmm. first thing that came to my mind looking at this list of myokines was, has anyone tried or like, if you wanted exercise in a pill, uh -huh. Would you inject animals with like a couple of the top myokines and see what happens periodically? You know, this this, this question was already addressed in 2005 for, uh, by Ron Evans. I think he, he, he was injecting uh, mice with some kind of a PGC1 agonist, right? And ensuring that there were these adaptations that happen. But, you know, that's that's one thing, right, uh, Camille? The, the exercise in a pill is just one target. Right, so it's purported to have one target, but and you have to pay for that pill. But then, if we were to just look at exercise per se, it it's it has you know multiple effects. 
Right. The effects on multiple organs are truly pleiotropic and it's free. So I think to this day, there's no one single molecule that can uh, effectively recapitulate many of these beneficial outcomes. Right. But then again, I am, I could be very biased because uh, um, I am a proponent for exercise. Um, and you can quote me on this. Right. That's an interesting aspect. Yeah. It's, um, Relative, it's free to do exercise, but most people, on the other hand, they don't. They still don't do it. <laughs> That's correct. And you know, since exercise has so many effects, and if the pill just has, let's say, a target, and the target is um, cardiovascular benefits, but exercise being free and pleiotropic, you can have benefits for your heart. You can have benefits for how you feel after, and you know, it, the the benefits are just multiple, and it's just. Um, you know, it's just much more numerous than what you could have in a pill. And I, I like what you mentioned about um, mouse studies, because I think, um, and that's also very controversial, because then are we truly looking at exercise in animals, or are we truly just looking at a stress response when we put them on a treadmill? I think some animal physiologists are saying that this is more of a stress response, and it's not truly indicative of what we uh, human beings are doing when we exercise. And, you know, even if we were to put them on a running wheel, it doesn't truly recapitulate human activity. Um, I think, you know, even in a mouse model, when they're exercising, they're in a horizontal position, right? So the hemodynamics are completely different from what we are doing because our, our bodies are upright. So, you know, they're, they're, they are still a model and the model does not have to be perfect. It comes with a lot of limitations and it does help us in terms of understanding some of the mechanisms involved because we are never going to be able to get a liver biopsy from a from a human subject but maybe things would change once we once we see more of the uh, targets that are being released from uh from organs and tissues into whole blood maybe those things would change again yeah when looking at the the mouse literature one notices that like the protocols for physical activity in mice are very limited it's usually wheel running so has anyone ever tried to do some sort of um, resistance exercise in mice? Yes, they have. Um, in fact, I think they there has been one group, and I forgot where they're, where they're, where they're from. Uh, they actually designed some kind of a weighted vest uh, on these mice, and then they allowed them to exercise on kind of a ladder. So it's akin to carrying the, a weight on their bodies, and then they allow them to do some um, running or some movement. And I think another group looked at building a kind of a squat machine for I think a rat or a mouse. I can't remember which which uh, species, but literally allowing the mouse or rat to actually um, carry or, or bear on their, on their, on their backs um, a, a weight. And then they would incrementally add weights until uh, the mouse or the rat would, would uh, give up. So yes, yeah, so that kind of strength training has been, has been uh, conducted in animal studies. Uh, more often than not, besides treadmills and running wheels, uh, other investigators have looked at swimming. So they put them in a tub and then they looked at, um, so the mice obviously or the rats won't be doing laps, but they're just counting how long they stay afloat or how long they spend kicking water. But again, according to some uh, animal uh, scientists, behavioral scientists, they they are suggesting that this is not a truly... Um, reflective of exercise but rather it's more of a stress response it's more of a distress you know it's 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 either the mice or the rats would drown if they don't survive 
So they would try all means to try to, to stay afloat. But then there are also um, other reports showing that if the mice were to drown, purposely drown, then they would be rescued from the invest by the investigator and then may- maybe taken out from that from that study. So it saves them from swimming. So I think it's very complicated to 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 try to conduct these kinds of studies in, in animals. And I think you know that's really just no ideal situation, right? I think for certain mechanistic studies, I think they represent a good model, but uh, there's a there's a limit to that. So were people really trying to draw conclusions about exercise from those swimming tests in mice, specifically about exercise? I think they're always trying to, a lot of these kinds of studies are always trying to um, at least support the main narrative, right? That it's beneficial. Um, I don't think I've seen studies showing, let's say swimming, that it's actually detrimental to, um, to, the, to the animal. So usually, usually it, it's pretty supportive of the mainstream understanding of exercise. Yeah, those are two interesting issues. So one is swimming does not seem like a great exercise paradigm for mice because they're obviously very stressed. Mm-hmm. And the other that you're alluding to is uh, publication bias. Do you think this is affecting like the mouse uh, data on, on exercise in animals? Publication bias in the sense that... In the sense that uh, they don't... Researchers wouldn't publish negative studies that don't Absolutely. support a mainstream view. Absolutely. I think that that is also a challenge in our field. I think as with all, you know, scientific studies, I think this this is a challenge that we are all facing that, you know, how many times do we need to reinvent the wheel, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Maybe we can talk about um, ongoing research at the Center for Healthy Longevity and how are you involved? What are your future research goals? Um, yeah, so at the Center for Healthy Longevity, I think what we are very keen on looking at is how does exercise then, you know, how does it combine with these geroprotectors, right? How does it combine with these geroprotectors in slowing down biological aging? So right now we have an ongoing study looking at the effects of uh, alpha ketoglutarate AKG on DNA methylation in, in a group of uh, middle-aged individuals. So this study is, uh, is it's not an exercise study per se, although we are looking at the effects of uh, cardiorespiratory fitness in these individuals and seeing if that would change if, we, if they were supplemented with the supplement. I think moving forward then, we would be testing different kinds of these kinds of supplements with different types of exercise interventions. I think that's really, uh, for me, that would be really exciting. I think another approach that we are trying to do, and uh, that's a small study that's ongoing, and that is really trying to look at personalizing exercise, right? So I think we touched on this earlier uh, during the, t- uh, the talk, and that is how do we know which individual or what types of exercises or what intensities would be beneficial for each individual? So we have a pilot grant from uh, the Healthy Longevity Catalyst Award to look at using machine learning to determine how each individual should um, be starting their aerobic exercise training. So we have individuals coming into our lab and then they get tested on um, either a low, a medium or high intensity um, cycle exercise. And then we would use machine learning to try to identify the most optimal uh, starting point that they should begin uh, the training. So if this works, then, you know, that would be a very clear effort in terms of guiding individuals towards their personalized uh, training regimen. Of course, I think I'm also still very interested to look at how exercise can 
can modulate some of these um, damage associated molecular patterns. And whether that could be, um, you know, a key in which, you know, it, it helps to mitigate um, accelerated aging could be could be explored as well. Yeah, we are talking with some investigators uh, that are in the field about running potentially parallel studies in animals and, and humans. So we'll keep you posted. So looking towards the future, if you could speculate, so you worked on this HMGB1. Um, let's say it's released after exercise and how would we turn this into a potential therapy or what would be the next steps? That's a very good question, Camille. I think still a lot is not known. Um, we know that at least some HMGB1 antagonists seem to work in specific diseases like um, you know, some, some kind of cancer. I think just speculating, like if we were to have individuals exercise and you know, we look at these molecules being released while they're undergoing treatment, maybe that could be used as an indication of whether they're benefiting from the treatment or not. And if exercise can actually be potentially adjuvant to, to whatever kind of uh, treatment they're getting. So I think it would serve as a very good biomarker for, for chronic disease intervention. I think uh, some others in the field are also looking at exercise as a means to improve the retrieval of uh, leukocytes. You know, so for example, in adoptive immunotherapy, I think that one of the one of the challenges is really in trying to get sufficient number of cells for for such purposes but if you imagine like an individual um you know exercising before their treatment or exercising before they fall ill you know and having those cells stored away for future adoptive therapy purposes i think that would be quite exciting all right so using these things as markers then there are there's the personalized approach and the combination with the supplements that the Institute is looking at. Yep. Yes, absolutely. I have a uh, one question though, or I don't know, suggestion. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, so th these are combinations with supplements. Have people considered combining it with pharmacological therapies, especially rapamycin and exercise, for example? Not rapamycin per se, or at least I'm not aware of, but for other um, drugs like metformin, it's already it's already been published. Like uh, a couple of groups have done it. Like uh, Nir Barzilai has done it and published it about I think two years ago. Um, yeah, so definitely. But I think maybe rapamycin could be the next thing on the horizon with with exercise. Yeah, very exciting time. Yeah, one could imagine uh, it would be beneficial since rapamycin might have negative impact on insulin resistance, and exercise could offset this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, yeah, I'm just generally very excited uh, about rapamycin because, so let me briefly explain. So when, when you look at the mouse studies, when you compare, for example, the benefits of wheel running, right, to the benefits of rapamycin, at least in mice, it seems like rapamycin is even so much better than exercise. And exercise mm -hmm. in humans, those different kinds are already very, very beneficial. Mm -hmm. So if it worked, that would be huge. In other words, it would have a kind of... Uh additive effect, um, a much more additive effect than just exercise alone. Yeah, completely agree. I, I, but I think also I had this study done when I was uh, still doing my PhD, where I looked at combining rapamycin in, in a child, in mice, and then I uh, allowed the mice to go for wheel running sessions. And, you know, again, those are very preliminary data, but the mice that actually ran uh, and that were treated with rapamycin appeared to 
have faster tumor growth, and those were implanted tumors, right? Uh, somehow it didn't benefit them, um, you know. So it, again, it's I think it may be very context specific. It may be very age dependent. Those mice that I used were young mice, um, but it was just a study that kind of poked my interest because you you just talked about rapamycin, and uh, yeah, I think there's still a lot of unknowns, but I'm sure we'll we'll figure that one out in a few years. Yeah, I hope so too. And like just generally looking at the totality of evidence, um, it looks good for exercise. It looks good for rapamycin, at least in, in animal models. And it will be exciting to combine these two and just look. Absolutely. I think that should be the next thing that uh, we should be looking at. And is there anything I forgot to ask you or something you would like to add? I think I pretty much covered most of it, Camille. Thanks, thanks for giving me this, this opportunity to talk. Sure, it was fun. All right, this was a very interesting podcast. Let me keep the comments very brief today. I do like the idea Jerming suggested about individualized exercise. It is intuitively to me the right approach, although I have not reviewed the evidence for and against it. And maybe I can give an example from the real world that is somewhat different than the study design he aims for. So for me, I know that I enjoy some sports more than others. For a while, I was very much into climbing. And during this time, I probably would not have picked up some other sport. If I did not find climbing, which at that time really suited me, then the total amount of time spent doing physical activity would have been much lower for me. For a while, climbing was like an addiction to me because there was a social and there was a competitive angle on top of just getting stronger. I can imagine the differences might be huge for people that some people would spend 50% more time doing a sport they really enjoy, they're passionate about, compared to doing something they do not enjoy. However, many of these people do not get the opportunity to figure out what they do enjoy, so a lot is left on the table. As a side note, we really do need more creative approaches to get people to do physical activity. Some colleagues I know even suggested paying people to do sports. And you can imagine an insurance company calculating the benefits they derive from X hours of exercise, the dollars saved, and then paying part of this back to overweight patients. This is all worth discussing. We really need new approaches. And finally, for a critical take about exercise. I think I briefly mentioned this during the podcast. So exercise is very important, but lifespan extending drugs are very much underappreciated, even though they work so much better in animal models compared to exercise. Yet, we invest so little time in the study of these compounds. It's very, very disappointing. I really do believe that exercise is overrated relative to drugs, because these drugs have a bad reputation, although in reality they actually have some significant advantages over exercise. So for example, much easier compliance. It is easier to take a pill than to invest a lot of time doing exercise. Sure, it of course remains an open question whether the mouse data will translate to humans. But if we take it at face value, then rapamycin is around 10 times better than exercise. Imagine that. We could save trillions of dollars if rapamycin even worked half as well in humans as it does in mice. I will leave it at that. You can check out the show notes for some more comments on this topic. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for tuning in.